Hello, uh, and welcome to Mixed Media. Uh, on this episode, we will be doing reviews again from uh, uh, different forms of art we found on Reddit. As you can see, we have a special guest um, coming from the uh, two episodes ago, actually, from uh, one of the movies uh, we reviewed. Um, if you'd like, uh, introduce yourself first. Hi, uh, yeah, my name's uh, Jason David. All right, and uh, yeah, I guess we can go through introductions of the rest of ourselves. So I am Nathan. I am a uh, game developer and 3D modeler. Uh, I'm I'm Ben Costello. I'm a flutist, flautist, flute player, whatever you want to call call that, and a uh, media composer. Is flutist the right term, or is it actually is it flautist? flautist? Uh, oh, in Europe, in Europe, people tend to say flautist, and in America, people tend to say flutist. And I just tend to avoid all confusion by saying flute player if I don't know who I'm talking to. But, you know, people, most people say flutist in America. So, I uh, gotcha. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was wondering if that nameplate's been wrong for a long time or something like that. Oh, no, <laughs> it's correct, given the fact that we are in, in America. Gotcha. Well, I'm Irving. Um, I'm a media entrepreneur slash filmmaker. I own a production company called Ariella. Oh, I don't have my hat on today. I was going to do a merch plug, uh, but I'll save you from save you the uh, the pain of having uh, me plug my company. Um, and yeah, we're mixed media. This is the awesome thing we do every Friday, seven p.m. Eastern time, where we discuss anything art related. You know, we are we come from our own part uh, particular spaces of art um, slash art entrepreneurship and all that kind of stuff. You know, we like to talk about art in general and invite you into that conversation. That's why we like doing it as a live podcast. And I'm really excited today because we have something new, which is interviewing someone, which is the first time we're doing this on the podcast. And I'm super stoked. Um, it looks like we got a we got a few people popping in as well. So hello, everyone. And uh, yeah, uh, I guess I'll start my segment. So what we do on reviewing Reddit is we find stuff that we see on the internet. It doesn't really have to be reddit but that's a nice place to go to find communities of people who are sharing their stuff so you know i'm snooping on you know r slash short films watching a bunch of stuff and i like to pick out stuff that i find interesting and oh hello yeah submit through discord there you go um yeah i just i i like to pick out stuff that uh you know interests me um i think uh, that we all can learn from, you know, in terms of the good and, you know, maybe some things we can learn from in terms of the bad stuff. Um, this time we have like mostly good stuff to say, cool. <laughs> you know, this, 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 this film, you know, had me hooked from front to back back and I was really enjoying it. And I said, I normally try to avoid things as long as 30 minutes. Um, <laughs> uh, so it's a 30 minute long short. So obviously I'm not going to be playing the whole thing here, but um you know, I just I had to do it because I thought it was that interesting. I wanted to break it down. Uh, well, um, thanks very much, man. Yeah, yeah, so, no problem. Question: What what exactly defines a short then in terms of its length? Because that doesn't sound like a. It sounds like a, a longer end of a short. So, like, what's the line between like a short and something that's not a short? I think the Academy definition is less than forty minutes, if I'm not mistaken. Um, there's this weird dead zone between like. 40 in an hour or something. I'm not sure. Which you should probably not make a film that length anyway. Am I wrong? I don't know. <laughs> no, I think uh, I think that's right. Um, and uh, uh, please stop me if I'm jumping ahead, but I think the 30-minute runtime um, 
<clears throat> in a way sort of hamstrung us with festivals because a lot uh, a lot of short film festivals put together viewings in blocks so it's like it'll be blocks of like seven eight nine ten minute films maybe so a 30 minute film is sort of in um it's like it's almost like a it's like a dwarf feature more than anything else it's not it, yeah. it doesn't really showcase what a uh what the goal of a lot of short films is no that makes a lot of sense yeah um yeah, I know. Like, uh, basically, what, what he's saying with the blocks is like, you know, sometimes they'll set aside. Depends on the film festival. Sometimes they'll set aside like thirty minutes, or sometimes they'll set aside an hour, and they want to film that thirty-minute or hour block. Let's say with horror films, or let's say with, um, you know, best music uh, um, uh, nominations, or something like that. Um, and so, if you have like a, a long film, they have to sacrifice showing like let's say three, two or three shorter films to show your longer film. So it's almost as if you have to be like twice as good. Right. <laughs> is a way to think about it. Yeah. I think that's right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, before you continue to be a stranger to everyone who's on the stream, tell us about yourself, your relationship to uh, the, the film. The film is uh, bum promises. There's a link in the description actually. So if you want to check that out, uh, it's long, so by the time I get to breaking it down, you will probably won't be able to finish it. But uh, the link is in the description. Um, but yeah, would you want to introduce yourself? Uh, yeah, so um, uh, I'm Jason. I was a, a writer and producer. I was uh, the writer and one of the producers on the movie. Um, I adapted it from uh, a one act play that I had produced at the University of Southern California in 2015 uh, with Mark Rosenzweig, who uh, directed that production and then also mm. directed the film. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, that was going to be my next question. I, I saw that it was adapted as a from a play, and I was wondering, uh, you know, how that came about. So, what what made you uh, decide to go from play to uh, screenplay? So, I was in the theater department at USC, but I was uh, I was friends with a lot of film people, and I'd say uh, I wrote the script as a stage play because I was able to sort of like execute like the low level, no budget version of that on stage, and I certainly wouldn't have been. Uh, as a short film, but I think the influences on the script are more uh, filmic than they are theatrical. So um, when we were coming to the end of our senior year of college, Mark and myself and a couple other guys uh, began to view that as a sort of um, like an ad hoc thesis project for graduating uh, was to uh, film this thing and make it a short film um, through our friend Mike's and also uh, Mark is also a part owner. And then later I myself became one of uh, the Zephyr Entertainment Network, was a, uh, which is Mike Smith's production company based in L.A. So that was sort of a, um, a venture into, uh, I, I guess, uh, narrative filmmaking um, for that company and for all of us on a, like a non-academic level. That's ah, pretty cool, yeah. So when did you uh, graduate? So was that be like 2015, 2016 or something like that? Uh, yeah, so uh, we, gra uh, we graduated in May of 2016, and I actually skipped the graduation ceremony to fly to North Carolina uh, ahead of everybody else and start scouting locations and stuff uh, for the movie. Cool, cool, yeah. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's pretty, pretty cool. Um, yeah, and uh, I guess a, a lot of a lot of people, especially from uh, a lot of the filmmakers that we uh, talked to last time, they're younger. You know, they're, uh, I don't even think they're uh, thinking. They might not be thinking about college yet. I'm not sure. Um, but some of the people we had on last time, you know, the, the younger end, and they might be thinking about going to film school. I didn't go to film school, but um, what are your thoughts about film school in general? I know that's like a hot topic in general. Uh, so I didn't. Uh, I, so I actually uh, I graduated with a BA in theater, um, which 
you know, I don't know. I would say it's of uh, it's of limited value. I guess you know, part of it depends on the types of uh, financial resources you have. It's like loans or financial aid that you might get that would allow you to go to film school and experiment with those sort of uh, filmmaking technologies and methods there, and also to interact with the sort of people who are going to be going in that professional field. Uh, there may not be other ways to, because, you know, the sort of populist thing to say is, oh, if you want to make movies, just go and make movies. But, you know, I don't know if you're getting access to things like the types of cameras and sound equipment that they get to use and the ty- the same types of people. Uh, so I, I don't know. I wouldn't say I'm an authority on it. Um, uh, Mark actually also uh, graduated from the theater school with me. I think uh, Mike, our producer, uh, would be probably able to give a, a more thorough answer on what he thinks is the utility i guess of going to film school but uh if you want i could get uh, uh i know you've been mostly in touch with mark i could also reach out to mike and sort of see what he has to say on the subject and pass that along to you uh after we have off the call oh yeah for sure yeah i'll uh, i'll put that in the the top comment or something like that i'll put uh what the response is about film school um yeah so what was the process then is it multi-stage process so i guess how did you how did the story develop yeah, well, I started in like VFX, then I went into directing because I was like, okay, you know, I, I think I really want to tell stories. I think that's where I belong. Um, and then I, you know, really started diving into writing. So it's really cool to have you on because that's what I've been talking about the most uh, lately. What was your process in brainstorming to, you know, putting the words down? How'd that go? So very first started writing the idea when I was probably around 19 and then we filmed it when I was uh 22 um before that obviously it's not that long of a time but you know i would always write things that could never like hook into anything um but the main character in this movie of um bones and i think he had a couple other names before he was ultimately named that was the first sort of uh, character whose voice i could hook into and it was sort of uh an amalgam of uh, i'm a big fan of folk music so there's sort of tied into a, a lot of personas from uh, americana music there are a lot of figures sort of on the fringes of society or like uh, you know habitual criminals or gamblers and stuff like that with a certain uh, certain um, uh, dialect that uh, mm-hmm. I was affecting for the voice of that character and also sort of uh, I was <laughs> I was watching the first season of True Detective a lot um, and that was there's sort of the metaphysical rambling that I think uh, ends up being tied into the Bones character so started writing it. Uh, just as monologues at first and then sort of figuring out ways that a character like that could interact with a character who was uh, more like myself. What were the circumstances that would make uh, someone like me vulnerable to a character like Bones? Um, Mm. Sort of teasing out the plot that way. Wrote a draft of it that I would have would have been reading that in the winter of or maybe the either the winter 2013 or 2014, and then uh, rewrote it a lot over the course of the next year, and then that's when we did uh, the stage production, and then um, uh, that would have been the spring of 2015, and then basically from January of 2016 through uh, production was just writing and rewriting and rewriting the film version of the script. So the basic shape of the story, like what happens in the movie is basically what happens uh, in the play. I think there are probably some small changes, but not really. The shape of that story that unfolded in the play uh, took place between, like, you know, 2013 and uh, early 2015. Yeah, that makes sense. Cool. And was it, like, was it a, like, painful process? Some people describe teasing out a story from their brain as, like, a kind of, like, excruciating process of sort of shedding from yourself a lot of 
a lot of personal stuff. So, uh, yeah, there was definitely some of that. And also just, um, you know, I was, uh, particularly early on, I was, I was working, you know, excruciatingly, I was neglecting schoolwork and working excruciatingly, like very long hours on the script and then the script just wasn't very good. Uh, so that definitely stung a lot. Cause it's like, you go into these things with these preconceptions that you're a talented person or whatever. And it's just like hours and hours and hours of input. And then the output was just, uh, bad. And like, I, I had a reading of it with uh, some of the other people from my theater department when it was still a play. And I just remember feeling pretty, um, embarrassed by a lot of the stuff that was, uh, uh, in it. Um, so yeah, it was, uh, it was painful in that sense, particularly since it was the first major thing that I had worked on. It was a sort of more, um, all consuming process compared to mm. some of the stuff uh, that I've worked on since then, which has been like much more, uh, sort of workmanlike and sort of sectioned off. And I know why mm. I'm working on it and I know how to work on it productively and stuff like that. Yeah. But a lot of that just had to do with being a kid for sure. Mm, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. What have you been doing since, since this film? Because it's a long journey. I don't think a lot of people realize, even for short films, they can take really long journeys, you know, to uh, being produced. Um, so, yeah, what? How have you changed, and what have you been up to uh, while that's been going on? Uh, so, I'm actually a. Um, so after after writing the movie, I came to New York, um, and I've been here pretty much for the duration uh, of that time since I moved here in August of 2016. I spent uh, basically the what would have been the school year from 2017 to 18 um, working in children's theater in upstate New York in Auburn. Uh, and then since then I've pretty much just been uh, living and working uh, in New York and doing a lot of stand-up comedy. Um, uh, I've written a couple other scripts uh, with, in collaboration with those guys uh, from Zephyr and we produced another short film a couple years ago, a comedic short film me and my girlfriend wrote called Backpack. Uh, that's also on the Zephyr website. Uh, but other than that, my, yeah, my main thing, um, doing a lot of stand-up comedy and, uh, you know, still uh, writing various things, scripts and other stuff. Um, uh, Mark and Mike have uh, stayed much more directly involved in film production out in Los Angeles. Cool. Are you uh, originally from New York? or? No, I'm originally from Atlanta, Georgia, actually. Went to school at USC and then uh, have been living in New York since then. Cool, cool. Gotcha. Yeah, and uh, how has the uh, film festival run gone? And, you know, well, actually... First, how did you roll it out? Like, what was the, did you have a plan beforehand, plan of attack to the film festival circuit? Or did you just, uh, you know, kind of go for it? Yeah, how was that? I think we submitted to a lot of the most prestigious ones first. Uh, I, I, I wish I could give you more detail on this because um, just because Mike was in Los Angeles and or Mark and Mike were in Los Angeles and were uh, much more directly in control of the post-production process, uh, I believe, um, and I will reach out to them uh to make sure there's any corrections on this, but you sort of submit to the most prestigious ones first because, you know, entry into, if you apply to them all at the same time and then you get into the Anchorage, whatever, whatever film festival, I don't even know if this is a real one, but if you get into a, like a less prominent film festival and then also get into Slam Dance or something, then it actually compromises their desire to premiere at Slam Dance if you get into Anchorage. But we didn't get into, uh, I don't think we got into any of the most prestigious ones and then we did another uh, round of submissions and i uh i honestly i sincerely can't remember which um which festivals uh it got into so we went through multiple rounds of film festivals it definitely uh it premiered at a few i think we got a few awards and things like that um and then uh ultimately i believe when you would have found it is after we uh released it on youtube where it's uh i've honestly i've logged on and been shocked by how many people have seen it but it's it's uh it's had some sort of life in a internet short film uh community so that's been 
pretty cool because you do stuff like this and uh, whatever your ambitions are, there's a lot of things short of that uh, that can happen. Um, uh, but we're very much, I, I think we're all very proud of the uh, product that we made. And then the fact that it has had just an amount of viewership is, uh, uh, yeah, when I, when I think about it, it's definitely, it's a, it's a pretty wonderful thing for sure. Yeah, no. <laughs> um, I'm, well, I'm surprised and happy that you found it. I think Mark is, remains very active on Reddit and like circulating it and stuff. I think that helps a lot. Ah, uh, yeah, that's a smart strategy for sure. <laughs> um, <worked>. yeah. And <laughs> what <laughs> worked with this podcast. Yeah, exactly. Sure did. <laughs> um, yeah, so what was it like seeing it for the first time brought to life on the screen? Like, were you involved very much in, like, the production process? Like, were you on set? And then throughout that, when you got to the end and you saw it on screen, what was that like? Uh, I obviously wrote it and was one of the producers on it. Uh, my role in the, 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 the area where we film is um, that house was my parents' summer house in Cashers, North mm. Carolina. And we filmed all around that area. We filmed in um, Cashers and I think Dillsboro and uh, uh, around Bryson City and maybe Silva a little bit. Uh, so before filming started, um, I flew from California to Atlanta. I, uh, I was not the one who picked up the equipment, but I got some stuff. Uh, so I was in charge of some props and some design stuff, and I scouted a bunch of locations. Um, and then sort of the core production team uh mike mark haven johnson who also composed the music um and james goldberg who's also a producer uh, all flew out and maybe one or two uh, other people but i think that was the uh the core of the production team and then so i would go around with mark and uh i had options for some of the locations to film some of the scenes he would go you know that uh, that's a good spot that's good that's good uh narrowed down where we would be filming um Haven and uh, I believe Mike or someone, they like went down to Atlanta because a lot of the rental houses, we were renting film equipment out of Atlanta and then driving it up to North Carolina. So we got a big production truck, you know, one of those like big white cube trucks full of poles and shit and uh, drove it up to North Carolina. Uh, So we had that parked at the house. We sort of collaborate. We coordinated as best we could with the neighborhood about the fact that we would be filming. And uh, a lot of these are people that I'd known since I was a little kid. So for the most part, people in the area were very excited and um and uh you know happy for me that we were doing this uh so that part was easy and then i was basically what, what would you call it i was a uh, i was an on-set producer so i was like solving day-to-day problems and collaborate you know moving people around and getting equipment to certain places you know producer pa we were all kind of doing everything because it's a right shoestring project uh-huh. uh and then i was also pretty much for the most part acting as a, a uh, you know script supervisor i was making sure that the uh, lines were correct on set. Uh, mm-hmm. There was one thing. Um, so you remember uh, the opening shot is with a train. Yep. Uh, we felt it was that was the Great Smoky Mountain Railroad in Bryson City. Uh, we drove out a couple days in advance to find the place that would look good for that opening shot. Uh, we found that crossing, and we, uh, Mark and I, we went to Bryson City when the train was leaving, and we timed out how long it would take to get from the wow. station to the crossing, um, and then. So that was just us in our car. And then on the day we filmed, you know, we got there a few hours early to set up and everything. When we got ready to shoot it, and I was just like, Mark was, so this is uh, where Mark was a great director. I was very, like, just not wanting to go through any logistical difficulties to accomplish anything. So, like, at one point there was a question of whether we were going to be able to get a pickup truck for certain things. And he was like, yeah, we need the pickup truck. And with this, there was a question of, like, whether... Because we had no permits, we weren't, there's no, uh, we were not allowed to be doing this. Uh, he's, like, <laughs> filming around a train set. Um, right. So there was a, 
there was questions about whether this is the smart thing to do. And Mark was like, no, no, no we're just going to figure it out. So uh, I had to go. This is like deep hick, North Carolina. Uh, I had to, I, uh, I went down to um, like 100, 200, whatever it was, 300 yards before the train tracks. And I just had to stop cars and like lie to them about what we were doing there and ask them <laughs> to just stop uh, and not cross. And then we got the shot, thankfully. But then this this house that was near the train tracks saw what we were doing and they were just suspicious or were bored or whatever. And um, they called the sheriff. Oh, uh, no. So we all, you know, we got the shot and then we all had to like jump in trucks and drive away. And uh, one of the guys, <laughs> um, Rob, I'm forgetting his last name. I'm sorry, Rob, uh, is, uh, but he was there as assistant camera and uh, just, you know, uh, uh, part of the production team. Um, he, he drove away with the sheriff tailing him, but so the, just to make sure I got out of town, but in the back of his car, he just had like nothing happened. He didn't get pulled over, but we had like a bag of prop methamphetamine that was just like <laughs> if he got pulled over, there just would have oh. been a, something, a bag of something that looked specifically like it's supposed to be meth right. uh, in his car. So that that was like the uh, that was very much the uh, most uh, sort of uh, independent film moment. It's just like illegally getting that shot and getting chased out of uh, town <laughs> by the sheriff. That was a very uh, movie and movie moment for sure. Yeah, um, but yeah, just say, a lot of stuff like that. Yeah, I was gonna say it's like as dramatic as the film uh, happening yeah. on set. <laughs> it's yeah, and sort of yeah, very backwoods stuff. <laughs> yeah, uh, before I ask you to uh, sort of summarize the story, um, really kind of uh, left field question, but we we like to do these uh, things on the show where we uh, give our hot takes on things. So, do you have the hottest? What is your hottest take on anything in the film industry, uh, media related, whatever? Oh, in the, in the film industry? Well, you're welcome to say whatever you want, but... <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I feel like um, audiences are somehow getting more pretentious, but also stupider, if that makes sense. Because it's like, when you see... You go back into... And I don't mean to be nostalgic. There's a lot of movies that have come out in the past few years that I love, like a lot. But they're very small, and they're directed at small, 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 like vanishingly small audiences. Um, yeah. And you, I was watching a... I was watching Midnight Cowboy the other night, which is a, a, an incredibly, you know, dark movie about a guy who like comes to New York to like have his to be a male prostitute, and he, he's basically living like a borderline homeless life in New York in the late '60s, and it's just an absolute bummer of a movie, uh, like horribly depressing. But then it was a huge hit at the time and a phenomenon, and I think part of that had to do with whatever people's percept, like in the entire country were like trying to figure out what the fuck was going on in New York at the time. But the fact that a movie like that, just like utterly dark subject matter, like utterly adult themes and of extremely bleak ending was a huge box office success. Um, is so strange to think about when you consider that like now it's like, you know, big successful movies are basically for children and then adults like also go and see them. I just think that's so strange and sort of a movies that are about adults and adult things all get made for like $2 million and are shot around like three locations with seven actors total in the movie. Um, and, you know, 90 people see them and then four journalists are like, oh, it's the best thing ever. And then no one ever talks about them again. It's just very strange how small the cultural impact of uh, film has gotten, particularly because, you know, you go back. I don't know. It's just uh, there's so many great movies. And for all people talk about the shrinking attention span, a movie is two hours long and then it's over. 
as opposed to these shows that go on for seven years and you have to keep like, I don't know, it, it's, just, it's just such a different form of consumption. Oh, yeah, 100%. I think we can this agree is, on that one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think I think we've this is the, exactly what you said is pretty much what we've been talking about for the past, like, however many months. <laughs> it's yeah it's, it's uh, very strange i just got cri- you know i just got criterion it's like which is is so fun and being able to watch you know not just old movies but also you know just like cool movies from around the world and it's just um i don't know it's such to me it's such a populist medium and one of the great things about living in new york is you have all these art houses that show movies that if you were just bring them in casual conversation people would be like oh that's for artsy nerds or whatever which to a certain extent it is but when you watch them with a big group of people you're like oh these are all for everybody and like, oh, more yeah, so than, uh, like a lot of the movies for adults are made today are for everybody yeah no it's 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 i don't think it's a matter of like things being like inaccessible in terms of uh the audience being able to ingest things properly i mean we're exposed to so many different kinds of of stuff you know different mediums from really short form to like like you said like these endless shows all kinds of genres. It's never been more diverse, but at the same time, it's never been more narrow in terms of what the mainstream consumes, which is yeah. uh, extremely bizarre. So it's like audiences can ingest pretty much anything. It's just uh, people don't know what's out there. And I'll watch some things with uh, you know either my wife or some friends, and uh, they'll like be skeptical and they'll be riveted the entire time because it's just a good film. It's not just an artsy film. It's a good film um yeah yeah it's uh it's true but you know it's hard to get people to um uh you know i don't know there be oh dude i thought it was so funny uh i was talking to my girlfriend about this yesterday did you see the uh maybe i'm contradicting myself with this but did you see the in the heights movie no i have not no it's it's you know it's fine but it's, it's just it was so interesting when you think about how many stages of production that went through that no one went hey do you think maybe it's gonna be tough to make money on an 80 million dollar musical based on like a thing that Sorry, my cat's about to... Uh, I can't believe they thought they were going to make money on that. Hold on. Yeah, I don't know. So the, the actual film business, I think, is... A, I'm not in it. Uh, I'm not, like, successful in it, so I don't necessarily feel uh, qualified to speak on it in any detailed terms. But just as a consumer of movies, it's so uh, it's so strange what gets made and how it gets distributed um, and, uh, what, like, what makes something successful. 100%. And I can agree with you on that. Same vantage point. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, yeah, do you want to give a little summary if your cat's not eating you? <laughs> No, 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 she's fine. She's just going to sit on the laptop. Um, so the uh, the movie is about a uh, drifter who calls himself Bones. He's sort of um, loose in the wilderness of the North Carolina mountains, and he uh, he's seemingly on the run from something. Um, he meets this guy, Stubbs, who just camps in the woods, is living out in the woods, and th- from Stubbs he hears that this uh, locally famous folk singer, uh Arlo Arlo Green, I think is the name. Is sorry, it's been a while. Uh, has died. That his estranged children are back in town to attend to the funeral. Uh, Bones hears the story, uh, and then with uh, a seemingly uh, a, a you know factually questionable uh, tale about Bones's dad playing with Arlo sometime in the past, sort of ingratiates himself um, with uh, Arlo's children Delia and Curtis in order, presumably to get some money from them in order to get away from whatever forces he thinks are pursuing them and then hijinks and so yeah it's a um it's a good layered uh story um in the sense that there's different angles you're coming at things at different times so in short i really enjoyed the writing because i i thought it was not stuck in uh you know sort of like that three-act formula um 
I don't know how you decided to structure it or if you thought about structuring it at all or you just let the story naturally come or... Uh, yeah, I, I think, uh, you know, there's a thing that I wrote right after, or I guess there's a thing right after I wrote the play that was sort of broken much more successfully into the three-act structure. Um, you know, uh, as far as that goes, that process was much more nebulous for me. I was really just trying to, uh, it was more just sequence of events than it was like that at the time. Um, which is uh, actually, that's one of the things uh, when I go back and look at it, uh, I, I'm glad you like it and I appreciate the compliments. Uh, and I'm uh, certainly very proud of it. And I'm especially proud of the things that were done on the production end and with the acting. And I think it looks very competent and all these things. Um, but uh, one of my problems with it now is that it's a, uh, I do think the writing is kind of stilted and it's sort of like just people like stuck in situation. After situation. There's like a lot of people like sitting around at dinner talking, I think. I think we had to cut like 15 minutes of that. Um, anyway, uh, so yeah, that, uh, it was, it was pretty unstructured when I wrote it. I don't think I ever wrote an outline for it. Um, I just, uh, you know, I knew we had to get in the house and then I knew we had to get out of the house. Uh, and I had this sort of idea for the ending from pretty early on. Yeah. You're sort of kind of getting to getting to an image in your mind or something. like Yeah. That. That's yeah. that. Yeah. Sort of work backwards. Yeah. That makes sense. That's kind of how I work as well. Um, yeah, so uh, I don't know if you want to stick around for me to like break this down, or if you want to—I don't know if you have to head out now, or no, no, no. I'd, uh, yeah, I'd love to stick around. That sounds great. All right, cool. Um, yeah, so yeah, since you're here, I just want to start on the writing, and it's cool that you're sticking around because I'll get to ask questions about yeah, what you sure. were thinking think, when you yeah. did what. Yeah, happy to talk about that stuff. Yeah. Um, so first off, we we drop in with no context, which is surprisingly in mainstream is not very common anymore to just drop into a story. I don't know if you felt that because it was a short, there was no time for exposition or anything like that. But a lot of times you get front loaded with like, you know, a disgusting amount of uh, exposition um, sometimes hidden behind like a, like a a hook or something like that. Um, You know, very overly structured kind of stuff. But here we just kind of drop in, um, really the setting is the thing that's getting exposed and uh, who we're supposed to care about is getting exposed at the beginning. I don't know if you thought about that at all, but yeah, I think, uh, you know, the ex- the exposition that comes into play is uh, when he's talking to Stubbs and sort of uh, learning a little bit about Curtis and Delia. Then um, I think pretty much a big part of the idea of the movie is like, I, there's even enough that this isn't totally the case. Cause there's enough to suspect bones of being like a shifty guy, but uh, how without context and just seeing this guy, how he is, would I, or would someone like me or would you, the viewer uh, treat, this guy, if he came to your doorstep which, with such an affecting story, even if it was just words about someone that you loved and cared about and wanted to know better. Um, I think that's part of it. Probably a, uh, a character like this would maybe intuit how a figure like Arlo would play into the lives of his children, and he's sort of able to play to that. And I think um, when you're watching it, you want the menace to be vague rather than like, if right at the beginning you have all this stuff about who Bones is and where he's coming from, then it's not really suspenseful and you don't really feel like he's wrestling with anything when he's in the house. Yeah, uh, I actually just recently watched uh, Psycho for the first time, believe it or not. Um, <laughs> uh, and uh, at the beginning of Psycho, you just kind of drop into this conversation, right, uh, between uh, main character and uh, her lover, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and... This kind of reminded me that of that in the sense that you're kind of dropped into a situation where the, the dialogue is natural, it's just flowing, and the exposition is not just like the characters essentially talking at the audience. It's, it's more so you're slowly learning what the mental state of each person is, and you don't, you don't know anything. You don't know um, 
you don't know anything about Bones. You don't know anything about the person he's talking to. You don't know if that person he's talking to is going to stick around for the rest of the film. You don't know anything. And so you're coming, uh, you typically, I mean, you know, naturally we come into things with uh, sort of, you know, assumptions. So we see a homeless man. We have an assumption. We see him go to a campfire in the woods, you know, looks like a little camping ground. We make an assumption. Uh, we've learned that they don't know each other. We make an assumption, right? But all the, the whole time, we're kind of challenging those assumptions in interesting ways, which I think provides tension, essentially. So there's this great tension of what is what are people's motives? You know, what do people care about? Who should I care about? All that kind of stuff is pretty much unanswered, you know, um, for a good portion of the film. In fact, the film kind of operates without telling you much at all about what's in everyone's uh, mental states, which I think is what provides the tension, essentially. Yeah, so I really like that. Um, Thanks, man. Appreciate that. Yeah. So, yeah, I just want to say this this whole thing, I think, I talked about tension on a previous episode, so this whole thing just was, like, a really great example of how to do that well. You have, like, a whole bunch of different layers of things that are happening. It is kind of like Psycho in that sense as well, where there's kind of layers of things happening, and you don't know what... It relates to what or how things will progress or who will eventually i mean uh, if you haven't seen psycho there's um hitchcock doesn't really care as much about the individual characters as much as he cares about the overall tension so any characters at service to the overall tension essentially um which i'm trying to say that without spoiling anything yeah, so like you use, there's that lack of information, that information starvation. There's like that dramatic irony in a lot of places. So there's like this, we know something, uh, the characters don't know, and that we knowing something provides this extra tension where we don't understand the character's behavior necessarily immediately. They understand themselves, but we know something else happened. So here's a good example I'll give. Uh, there's this... So they they talk about like you said the children of the the, the dead uh, pop star um, or was it folk singer I don't know if I'm getting that wrong um, uh, yeah just like a you know the kind of guy that would be famous yeah exactly in the south in the seventies then we get this cut uh, to from the campfire lit to the campfire unlit and then we get these two characters arriving at the same campfire. So there's a bit of dramatic irony there where we know that the prior characters have been there. These characters don't know what happened the night before. Um, and there's a sort of like uh, almost like oppression of fate kind of feeling of like, OK, what's the fate? What's the fated thing about them yeah, arriving at the same place? Yeah, right. exactly. I, I think that I think that cut might have been Mark. I, I don't I don't remember if that was in the script or if he just, uh, you know, because obviously we're filming those two scenes back to back in the same location. He might have been the one to think about that they're out for like their hike and just happen across that campfire. Uh, but yeah, as I watch it now, that definitely um, has that effect. But I, I, uh, I can't remember if that was me or him or somebody else. Wherever it comes from, I think it's good. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And there's like, that's not the only example. There are many, there are many times where we know something like, for example, when we see bones used for the first time, you know, the characters haven't seen that and that provides attention for when we hear the noise later and we're like, okay, what, what, has transpired between seeing him use him seeing a gun and then what is going to happen to the, the, the characters when they realize that there's a whole bunch of examples of that sort of dramatic irony. Um, uh, and I'll talk about how the camera work actually helps with that later. Then we have a structure that I thought was uh, pretty nice. It was like, you know, so in terms of peaks, we have like, um, you know, the first peak sort of happens where we sort of let him in 
to the house, bones into the household of the two children of the uh, of the uh, pop store or singer or whatever. Um, the second sort of peak happens where um, we have the main character bones see the gun and he has that phone call and there's that noise. That whole thing is sort of like the end of that uh, piece. Then we have the truck arrive um, and then then we have the last piece is kind of a quick, you know, sort of like release. Uh, not really release. I shouldn't say that. It's the last bit of tension holding out uh, for and for the rest of the runtime. So I liked that. That was uh, there was nothing in there that was like, okay, this section doesn't need to exist, or there's a there's this is just happening for the sake of something else. You know, that was a nice progression. Oh, thanks, man. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think that's yeah that's that's what I had to say about tension. That that's just that's what really. Uh, struck me in terms of uh, what what was really well done in the writing was you know presence of tension um, in terms of stuff that maybe kind of pulled me out a little bit I think there was and this I it's hard to tell sometimes what's a writing thing what's an editing thing what's like a, what was chosen to shoot on set and whatever so I have no idea <laughs> um, but I think there's a little bit too much like the flashing back was a little bit too much um, oh yeah you're talking to uh which specific flashbacks? Yeah, I'm talking about the uh, to his uh, lover, whoever that is, uh, that he flashes back to. Um, there was a, a little bit too many times where it kind of took away from the mystique of what was going on. Um, yeah, that makes sense. I think that was all. That was all definitely uh, written in. I mean, there was even more. I think the uh, again the uh, so there were. I think one of them was cut entirely. Uh, correct me if this is wrong. Um, in the first cut of the movie which was like very much just like based on the script i think it was like a, an extra 10 or even 15 minutes long and it had like i think more of that and then also more of um flashbacks to his sort of immediate past like right before the movie so it takes you back to like before he gets to the train and some of the stuff you know burning down the meth lab and stuff like that yeah uh, i think if i were starting this process over i would have a better sense of like stuff that is overwritten in the script writing stage because you do like you film these things and it, it costs time and it costs money. Um, Mm -hmm. and then you go back and, uh, paring it down to like what makes sense, but what isn't too much is more difficult than if you just are do the best you can to figure that stuff out on the page in front of you. I mean, I definitely, I took the script from, um, something like 50 pages to 25 pages, uh, (laughs) but then it was still, you know, it's just, it's particularly when so much of it is like, things that I've forgotten since I was writing it, but like, Oh, I'm like proud of this thematic connection and the way that this plays into this like influence that I like. It's uh, it's hard not to be indulgent with stuff like that. And I think you definitely um, uh, have to go back through and make sure you're not being too, uh, you know, indulgent of whatever yeah. narrative devices that you enjoy. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. No. Yeah. It, it, I, I'm, nit- I'm nitpicking by the way. It's not, <laughs> none of these are major issues. I'm not, I'm not sensitive about stuff. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, it was really just more like a, you know, it's like, uh, I would rather it almost felt as though the more times we got it, the less uh, mysterious it was essentially because it, it it's like, okay, the first time we see that it's like, okay, we hear the voice, we see the flashback. We're like, what is that? And I kind of liked that. What is that in terms of, is that a mental thing? Is that like, you know, well, like what kind of mental thing is, is it even, you know, is it because of the drug use? Is it because of, you know, uh, prior psychological problems is it because of trauma? What is this? You know? And, I kind of liked not seeing as much of it better that way. Um, I, I would think. Um, and then I think, uh, the, I don't know, this might have to do with how much was cut out, but I think the, the brother and sisters 
what they're there for kind of gets lost. So like the, the sister, the sister, like she has this, like I said, you know, one of the little climaxes is like, you know, where she lets him in. And I don't know. I have that. I felt that that was well motivated. I didn't understand her change of mind in that moment other than, okay, maybe she's just sympathetic, but the way we set up their characters in the woods was very like, Oh, like, these are interesting, complex people that I felt like that didn't, none of that got explored very much, you know, in terms of how things played out. But that might have to do with a runtime thing. Uh, it, it may be partly a runtime run thing. There were certainly more details about uh, Delia's background and Curtis's background in uh, certain versions of the script. But I think the fundamental problem is that the um, character I was interested with and the character I was relating to when I was writing it uh, was bones and then so that was uh these other two sort of function as foils to like allow whatever psychological conflict is happening in bones to play out but i mm. didn't um i didn't have the tools at the time you know nor necessarily do i have them now to like have uh like three real people coming from real places to interact it was sort of a uh you know one sort of fully realized character on the page uh, you know i think greg and uh, mora who played uh, Curtis and Dealey respectively did a fantastic job and I think Mark did a great job directing them uh, all that stuff so this is purely about how I wrote the characters uh, is that uh, this sort of uh, one fully realized character who I you know was working through certain conceptions of self with whatever was uh, sort of dynamic and unfolding and then uh, whatever more uh, whatever Delia and Curtis's deal was was much more abstract if that makes sense yeah that makes sense that, that does make sense yeah I kind of felt that I kind of felt like there wasn't as much to hold on to with those characters. So that makes sense that you were sort of focusing on bones who definitely was a well fleshed out, you know, um, I watched it, you know, a few times. So when I went back and watched it again, very clearly, I mean, that's good directing. I can tell now that I know what the, what's going on with him more, not necessarily that, you know, know really everything about the character, of course, by the end of the movie, you know, uh, I could, dissect his uh, reactions and actions a lot better because now I knew what had happened. And so there was a lot more diving into the character. It's kind of like what I like with uh, character dramas in general is like, you know, you watch it for the first time, you get a frick ton of, of uh, tension, you know, um, mm. and trying to understand people. Right. Um, and when you watch it again, there's this whole other film that kind of opens up as to, Oh, I can understand what was going through the character's mind here a little bit better now that I know what happened. And that's kind of what happened to me with this one where he's sitting around the campfire, even his little micro expressions on his face are very congruent with what he should be thinking, which is some good directing. Um, and Ian, Ian, uh, Ian Boyd is a very talented actor. He's, um, you can actually see him. He's in Mank. Uh, he's in a scene in Mank. So, uh, oh, go cool. check that out. Follow him on Instagram. Uh, Maura Mantle and Greg McKillop are the two other main actors. Uh, I'm sorry, I forgot the gentleman who played Stubbs. Um, but yeah, first of all, yeah, thank you. Uh, yeah, uh, I think uh, Ian does a tremendous job. Yeah. I don't know if you know, uh, uh, well, I'm going to talk about cinematography now because I'm kind of a cinematography nerd. Um, <laughs> but uh, I don't know if you know, but it is is your cinematographer, uh, uh, was your cinematographer or director like influenced by David Fincher at all? Or... Um, Oh, I bet Mark uh, is a big Fincher guy. Uh, Mike DeJoya was the um, was the DP. Uh, I, I, I and I don't know um, if he was uh, influenced by Fincher in the way they were framing stuff. I, I would imagine so. It's whoever was coming out of film school and 
2016 was probably watching a lot of Zodiac and shit like that. Yeah. <laughs> here, let me let me see if I can find like there's a there's like some segments in here where oh yeah, like this dinner scene, the way it's shot is very sort of Fincher. Um pretty much all the camera moves are very Fincher. Uh probably hard to find like a good example off the spot, but um watch the film. That is that is the reason to watch the film. Um <laughs> but yeah, the the so you have like so what makes it that way is basically you have like these very like uh, you have these translational movements that are happening ro- with rotational movements at the same time. So you have like the camera tracking left, right. And you have like this rotation that's happening at the same time. Um, you have like these framed compositions. So like uh, if you think of sometimes Fincher, Fincher likes to do these like very frame shots where like there's the frame within the frame. So like you have like, you know, in some of these shots you have like the banister that's framing out the shot where you have the tree that's like aiding in the composition Um closing out the left side of the frame or something like that. Um, you have that as well. So you have that also while you're moving. So use that to create depth as well, which I thought was pretty cool. And there's a lot of digital zooms in translations as well, which like, I don't know any director that does it as much as David Fincher with like these, like sort of like in the editor zooming in, which looks very different from a push or even an optical zoom on, on a camera, right? Like a push gives you that parallax, right? You have like objects coming in and out um, in the way that you would sort of expect and zooms uh, sort of compress the background and all that kind of stuff while you're zooming it optically. This is purely digital, which means that the image is essentially like becoming bigger, right? Um, on the screen to sort of zoom it, which gives it this very like, otherworldly uh Fitcher actually talks about this his his idea for that kind of cinematography is that the world is the stage in his movies and they're not supposed to be real it's supposed to feel you know it's supposed to feel like a movie and so that's that's sort of his uh philosophy um behind that so i thought that was pretty cool and it works so well with the story i think the camera work adds probably as much tension as the story itself has in it in it and the reason I say that is because the camera is kind of like, it knows where to go before the viewer knows what's happening, right? So there are certain shots where the camera's panning, completely unmotivated for people who don't know. Motivation is basically the reason why the camera might move. You know, that's sort of the theory behind motivation. So in uh, the other end of the spectrum would be like Spielberg. Every camera move is motivated. So every camera move has something that's... Uh, um, moving the camera in a certain direction. Sometimes they'll even add stuff, stuff in post. It's kind of odd where they'll add like a rat running across the screen so that he can motivate the camera movement left or right or something like that because he didn't like it. And this is all unmotivated moves practically. So very detached from your, like, you know, it feels like you're roving around in the world as like this sort of disembodied thing rather than being asked to absorb yourself in the world. It's a very different experience. And it works uh, go ahead. Were you going to say something? Oh, yeah. Well, sorry. I was just going to say, uh, I, I, so a lot of this I can't speak to, with, uh, especially um, articulately. A lot of that is just um, Mark and also uh, Haven, uh, who is our AD and is as big a cinephile as anybody I know. And Mike DeJoya, very talented. Um, I do know that some of the uh, the voyeurism, uh, I think particularly in the parts before um, Bones gets into the house, when some of the stuff between Delia and Curtis inside the house is unfolding is sort of first you're, uh, you're suggesting that Bones is watching the house. And then later, once Bones is in the house, you're suggesting that his pursuers are watching the house. And I think some of that came from, I'm a big fan of, uh, and a big inspiration for the movie was um, Night of the Hunter, the Robert Mitchum movie directed by Sidney Lawton. 
and mm. uh, there's there's scenes. It, it's sort of at its core of pretty similar plot. And um, before Robert Mitchum's character shows up in the movie, he's outside the house, like observing the characters inside and learning the types of things about them that would allow him to infiltrate their lives. Uh, so that. Oh, that, oh, I only say that to speak to the thing about the uh, the sort of voyeuristic or floating observational camera movements. Because a lot of the rest of what mm-hmm. you're talking about, I definitely, you would have to talk to uh, Mark or Mike or Mike DeJoy about that. Or Haven. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so, yeah, that's pretty much it. Like, the, the camera work added to the tension, which I thought was really stellar stuff. What I really dislike is when camera work is essentially just expositional, right? Like, it's just there to expose the action. That's pretty much it. You know, there's not really a movie at all that I think you have to do it that way. It's pretty much just a lacking of personality. And this one did not have that problem at all. Um, so who's a big director who you think does that other thing? Just the uh, the expositional camera work. Ooh, you know what? Uh, Nolan does that uh, a lot. Uh, it mm-hmm. actually bugs me <laughs> sometimes. Where oh, because like, he's just, he's, he's just kind of like showcase. He's just trying to showcase like how cool the practical effects he set up are. So he just sort of has like big sweeping camera movements and stuff like that. Yeah, sometimes it just lacks cinematic, uh, you know, character. You know, it's it just, uh, I mean, obviously, I, I actually like Nolan, you know, so that's not a knock on him or anything like that. It's just, uh, it's just very, the shots are there because this is what gives us the most efficient way to communicate to the audience something, right? Um, I was just hearing De Palma talk about that, actually, on a podcast. Uh, he wasn't, it was like excerpts from that uh, documentary about him, but he was talking about, uh, I just watched Blowout for the first time, and he was talking about how it's like he hates the idea of coverage and the idea that you always have to get things from like certain angles that you like figure out later. He's like, you want to know like what you're looking at and why and stuff like that. Um, yeah, cool. Sorry. Let me know. No, 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 that's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And then in terms of the color grade, uh, very flat, almost kind of loggy out of the camera sort of thing. Um, there's some, there were some scenes where it was, uh, there was like a monochromatic, uh, color scheme chosen, which I thought was pretty cool. Um, yeah, like, like this is pretty monochromatic. Yeah. Out here is pretty monochromatic, uh, which I thought was cool. I think sometimes though, especially outdoors when the woods, this look kind of looks a little muddy and a little without personality as well. So, you know, it's, there's like a, it's like not because of the lack of separation. Cause that doesn't bug me because the muddiness can be part of the look, you know, um, it's more like there wasn't as clear of a direction with why it looks like that, you know? Uh, I would imagine that at least part of that uh, would be, and by the way, just to everyone watching, to you guys, everything I'm saying is limited by my sort of, uh, I, I didn't pick the shots. I, I didn't even really like storyboard and stuff like that. I was on to help facilitate what they had in mind, but it's I don't necessarily have an eye for stuff like this. I think some of this stuff, we were kind of limited uh, by natural daylight to a certain extent, and there were only, mm. uh, there were only a couple scenes that we really were able to like line up, you know what I mean? Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. And then in terms of the editing, um, I thought the editing was very competent. Um, there's like, there's a lot of restraint sometimes. Like this dinner scene here, there's a lot of restraint from the editor, which I really enjoyed. The editor refrained from like just taking this very planned uh, long take and just letting it run. And instead, the editor uh, decided to, uh, you know, actually like really think about which shots to pick out when ending the long shot uh, for short bits of time is really important to punctuate things or to show off certain things. Um, I really enjoyed that. So you had like this really nice uh, play, not just with the camera moving in and out or recomposing, 
the scene or anything like that. You also had the editor choosing to cut to a medium close-up or something like that, um, which I think not... Uh, it's also your director, too, you know, because sometimes you spend so much time planning something, and clearly this this... You know, shots like that, I look at them like that's a lot of planning, I assume, at least. Um, you know, a lot yeah, of effort. Bro. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of effort to get those long takes right. Um, and so, you know, when you're in the editor, you as a director, you might be like, all right, we spent so much time on that long take, we're just going to let the long take run, you know, or it might feel disappointing. But everything was in service of the film, which is good, you know. So I think if we, you had let it run, I think it would have been not as good. So that was a good decision. Um, and there are many things like that, too, where I could tell that this was a continuous take, but there's some editing choices being made in here um, for the betterment of the story, not just for, um, you know, just to put down the best stuff you have, you know, that sort of mentality. Uh, I think that's like mostly it pretty much. Um, oh, yeah. The only other thing I'll have to say, um, I have to say, um, I yeah, notated in my original notes, I ended up reorganizing them. Is uh, I think uh, I don't I don't know what your you know you might have been focusing more on what Bones was thinking sort of towards the end and everything like that, but I think uh, for the sisters' actions at the end, and I, again I don't know what comes from where, um, I think that sometimes her reactions actions don't really jive with what I think of as like as like life threatening situations sort of things, and then it kind of took me out a little bit. I've actually been uh, unfortunate enough to be held up by gunpoint once in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, ben knows the story a little bit. Oh, yeah, you both know the story. Um, uh, in Baltimore, um, that, was, that was a good time. Um, and, like, it didn't really drive well with what I would think of as... Uh, I was with two other people as well, and so we kind of debriefed afterwards and... Um, there's a great YouTube channel actually uh, called the Behavior Panel. I don't know if you've heard of them. Mm. Um, they do like body language stuff. One thing they talk about a lot because there are a lot of times you know talking about lying and things like that. These are like I'm not. These aren't crackpots. These are like you know the one guy's like former former CIA. One guy's like you know former army interrogator. Another guy works for like people um, in the G8. He won't say who, but mm. um, pretty legit people. You you can look up their channel. They talk about fear a lot because a lot of times lying has to do with fear, right? So there's a lot of fear responses and it's very physiological. And I think there's like not enough involuntariness about the way she behaves or chooses her actions towards the end there. If I'm kneeling down with a gun pointed at me, I think I would be involuntarily both exit checking, looking for where the exits are, looking at the gun more than I look at his face, ingesting not so much what he's saying because I want to understand him, but more because I want to know how to get out of the situation. I don't, I want to say the right words, if that makes sense, that will get me out of the situation instead of I want to connect with him, if that makes sense. Sometimes if you set up the character well, you can get there anyway, because the character, that's, that's that character's way of behaving. But I think we don't get enough of the characters for me to say that big of a departure from, you know, what I think would be human behavior to just being like a complete stress response would be completely different if that makes sense. Uh, yeah, I uh, I think part of that has to do with um, uh, for my like my at that le- at that point in the development of the story fascination with the character of Bones, um, and it's not enough like taking myself out of uh, Delia's head because I'm like, 
in you know in in my brain as the writer i'm like oh what a you know uh, fascinating uh psychological change this character has undergone over the course he seemed like he was really trying to be a good guy and now he's struggling with that and then I, I i'm almost putting that in adelia who you're right probably wouldn't be feeling any of those things and actually her um affection or tolerance for bones is probably pretty um limited and based much more on his being a novelty than feeling some deep spiritual connection to this stranger um yeah, I think uh, as far as like kill your darlings, you know, I I obviously I really wanted Bones to talk about the sort of interaction he had with a girl from his past and the sort of um, uh, the relationship that the crumbling of that sort of human presence had and the sort of uh, the degradation of his humanity or whatever, whatever, uh, and wanting to arrive at that destination and having Delia's character behave in such a way that elicited that from bones rather than um having delia uh react in a natural way to the situation and getting to whatever psychological revelations i wanted to get to about bones with the action of the story rather than just through monologuing but i think also a lot of that has to do with um just particularly at that point so much emphasis and so much obsession with dialogue i think dialogue was everything an interesting dialogue is how you get to everything um and uh yeah i would definitely want to i think in general i'd want that if I were to rewrite that scene, I would definitely want it to be way less talky. Because, I mean, presumably, I mean, even take, like, Bones at that point is, thinks people are on their way uh, to kill him right then. So it's like he he's not going to, oh, when I was younger, there was a girl I liked. It doesn't, that doesn't even, I you know, and I like the effect that the scene has. And I really like uh, the last five minutes or so of the movie are, are what I would uh, go back and enjoy rewatching the most probably. But it doesn't necessarily make sense in, like, a literal way. Um, and I think... Uh, the way Delia is responding to being held up by the gun uh, is probably uh, within the context of that sort of larger structural whatever. Yeah, yeah. No, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, I just remembered one last thing. I don't know if you, I don't know if that was intentional or not, but there's this, uh, the, the truck coming in, um, adding, there's this, basically there's this other plot line with, uh, you know, these people who are coming to coming after Bones, the main character, while he's also trying to swindle this you know, these two siblings and, you know, we sort of introduced that truck, uh, you know, early on. Um, I think that might've been a little bit better if we got like an insert of inside the car. So, cause I think the first time I watched it, I didn't immediately understand that that was a completely separate thing happening. Mm-hmm. I was kind of like, did I get pushed back somewhere or something like that? I feel like an insert inside the car of like some distinct thing that shows that it's like a different thing going on would have helped a little bit. Uh, you know what would have been good is like a key chair or like something hanging off like a, a, uh, a rear view mirror or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I know what you mean. Uh, yeah. Uh, but besides that though, when they get out of the car, it's such a uh, breaking bad moment with their, <laughs> with their, their uh, feet. yeah, their feet coming out. It reminds me exactly of the twins in breaking bad. And I don't know if that was uh, an intentional callback. It looked like a literal homage almost. Um, uh, yeah that was definitely um i don't know if it was a literal homage but that you know uh the breaking bad finale came out uh what would have been the fall semester of my sophomore year of college which is when i would have started writing the uh the movie or the play version you know we all watched a ton of uh true detective it was sort of the it was definitely the area this is sort of gritty hour-long crime dramas was very much and still is uh the visual what uh it's in the ether of like what people are processing visually so i think uh yeah probably at least consciously or unconsciously breaking bad was definitely influencing uh that for sure because that was that was my feat as well it was me cool. and haven oh that's really cool yeah got, got your little cameo <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah cool 
Yeah, so that's pretty much all I got. I mean, I just recommend you guys check it out. Uh, we This is the first time doing an interview, so if you like us bringing people on to like literally talk to them as we like go through things, um, just let us know, and uh, we'll keep doing it. Um, if you've got to go, you can go now. Um, if you have any plugs or anything, social media, whatever you want to plug, you can go ahead. Uh, yeah, sure. I appreciate that. I would check out, um, uh, if you guys are interested uh, in the movie and in the uh, other projects that uh, I've worked on with some of these guys and then that some of these guys have also uh, worked on with other people. Check out uh, the website for the Zephyr Entertainment Network. Um, you can find a lot more stuff, stuff directed by Mark uh, Rosenzweig, who directed this movie. Uh, uh, sorry, I'm going to go. I'm going to make sure I plug everyone's things. Uh, and Mark is also involved in the Trifecta sketches on YouTube. Uh, so he acts and directs a lot of sketches uh, through them. I also uh, I have a podcast that I uh, run here in New York with my friend Matt Summerstein called White Boys oh, cool. Heart Movies. Uh, we just talked about old uh, on last week's episode. Yeah, and then uh, uh, my social media, you can find me at Jason David Comedy on Instagram and at Jason D Comedy on Twitter. So uh, Ian Boyd is on Instagram. He's the guy who played Bones. Uh, at Maura Mantle has a lot of very popular comedy videos. You can find her um on instagram and greg mckillop is uh the guy who played curtis uh i believe he has stuff on insta as well you can follow what they've been up to since the uh movie came out cool yeah very generous with your shout out shouting out your whole team that's awesome <laughs> sorry if i forgot anybody and i'm sorry i've taken up a lot of your guys' time i really appreciate you having me on the pod um it, this has been a lot of fun i haven't uh, talked about the movie in detail in uh, quite some time so i really appreciate it yeah, no problem. Yeah. And uh, maybe we'll uh, hook up later. I don't know. You're in the Discord now, so you know where to find us. <laughs> I'm on the Discord. You have my phone number. Yeah, I'd love to connect at some other point. Uh, thanks so much for having me. All right. Yep. All right. I'll see you. Thank you, guys. Talk to you later. Take care. If you guys want us to do more interviews, like, you know, with composers or game developers. Oh, uh, any news or industry? Uh, I oh, I, I posted in the Discord, but on the uh, Scarlett Johansson uh, front, um, it turns out that there's uh, yeah, an email a email exchange between Scarlett Johansson's representation and uh, some people from Disney, basically acknowledging that they with their that they really they told her that they were planning on simultaneously releasing on Disney Plus. They recognized in the emails that that would be a breach of contract, essentially, and. Then they said, we're going to renegotiate your, our deal with you so that we can do it the way we want, wanted to do it. But then they just didn't do that. So uh, it seems, you know, before before uh, before I wasn't so sure how this was going to go, but that's pretty damning unless there's some way to explain all of that in a way that makes sense. Uh, yeah, that's the update from ScarJo and uh, Disney. So uh, is that it? Uh, yeah, I guess so. Well, thank you so much for watching. If you've uh, stuck around the stream for this long, you are the real one. Why not join us on Discord is my next question. Um, link is in the description. Pop it community. Uh, we're going to be chatting all week, you know, amongst each other about stuff that's happening in film, media, gaming, music, literally anything. We'd like to have more people who have a little more, more uh, diversity in the arts that they, uh, they occupy. So if you're a painter, whatever, um, you know, ballet dancer, right? Uh, get in the Discord and speak about your art. We want to hear it and we want to share it with each other. Um, last thing I'll say is if you like this podcast, if you enjoy the fact that we review other people's stuff and chat with them and whatever, leave us a comment to tell us what you like or don't like and hit the like or dislike button. If you really don't like it that much, at least hit the dislike button so that I can know, uh, uh, so we can know what we should uh, do, that we should be doing better and striving for more. Uh, so with that said, I'll wish you guys a good week. Yeah, thanks right, for listening. Bye.